Welcome to another episode of the Crobecast, the show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And it's not only a new month, but it's a whole new year. Goodbye, 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. So, John, do you have any New Year's resolutions? Well, I just started my first batch of mead. I'm looking forward to learning the ins and outs of the mead fermentation process. And I'm looking forward to tasting all the products you make this year. What about you, Microbigal Nation? What's your New Year's resolution? Send us an email at microbigals at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you got planned for this year. Bonus points if it's microbe-related. Well, like we said, it's the first week of the month. That's right. So that means today we will be highlighting another forgotten microbiologist. Today we will be talking about the fabulous Dr. Margaret Jane Pittman. But first, what are we drinking today, Tess? Today we are drinking the Pittman Pim in honor of Dr. Pittman. For those of you that don't know, Pim is a kind of gin. So our Pittman Pim is a mix of gin, cucumbers, sparkling lemon water, some orange slices, and just a little honey. And honey has a lot of microbe facts. We could probably do a whole episode just on that. But today, we added for Dr. Pittman because of her work on whooping cough, and honey often being a home remedy for sore throats and persisting coughs. Yeah, have you ever used honey for sore throats? I use the honey lozenges. Yeah, they're very soothing. I don't think it's going to cure anything, but it does... It is very nice. It gives that temporary relief you need. Yeah. So cheers to the Pittman Pim. Cheers. Margaret Jane Pym was born on January 20th, 1901 at the turn of the century in Prairie Grove, Arkansas. She was the daughter of physician Jim Pittman and Virginia Alice McCormick. She had both a brother and a sister. And her dad was the only doctor in the rural area and she would help him out on his rounds and help administer anesthesia to his patients. Her father died when she was pretty young, but she was still able to go to college. She went to Hendricks College, where she doubled major in mathematics and biology. Get it, girl. She won the Walter Edwin Hogan Mathematics Award in 1922. She served as a teacher and a principal of the Galloway Women's College before she enrolled at the University of Chicago, where she obtained a master's degree in 1926. She then got a fellowship to pursue a PhD, which was an opportunity undreamed of, as she put it. And she graduated right after the Spanish flu, which happened in 1918, and the Depression, which was in 1929. So not a really great time to graduate and start looking for a job. No. I think the world's still recovering from that at that point. Yeah, similar to 2020. Not a great time to go looking for a job. So in her early career, she went off to the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research under Rufus Cole, and this is where she began her work on H. influenza, influenzae. And she wondered if H. influenzae causes influenza. Her biggest paper was published in 1931 and was entitled Variation in Type Specificity in the Bacterial Species Homophilus Influenzae. And I just want to read you the concluding paragraph of this paper because you know how I love the historical papers because they're so short and they're very 
They're not convoluted at all. No, they're very precise. There's no fluff in them. Yeah, so this was the concluding paragraph of that Hallmark 1931 paper. Strains of influenza bacilli are of two kinds, which have been called S and R. R strains from colonies that are rough and irregular in outline are less opaque than S colonies, are of smaller size, and are not iridescent. The individual bacterium possesses no capsules, and these strains produce no soluble specific substances. The S strains are also more pathogenic for animals than are the R strains. So basically, she was able to find that the pathogenicity was linked to the presence or absence of this polysaccharide capsule. And in her work, she identified six different serotypes of Haemophilus influenzae, which she named A through F. And John, do you want to talk a little bit more about H influenzae? Yeah, so this bacteria is gram-negative. They call it nowadays a cocobacillus, and what that means is it, the shape of it is between a circle and a rod, and the most common type of it is type B. It resides normally in the nose and throat, usually doing no harm. Like as a commensal? Yeah. Oh. And most strains are called opportunistic pathogens, so only when something happens to change the environment. Like if someone gets sick, there's a bad cut, Stuff like that. Or if you're a child, right? It's more prone for children infections? I believe so. And it most often causes pneumonia or ear infections. And also can cause skin infections, inflammation of the joints, swelling of the throat, blood infection, also known as septicemia, and meningitis, where the membranes that cover your brain and spinal cord get infected. Wow, none of those sound like the flu or influenza. No. But they all sound terrible. They are terrible. And some of the complications is you can lose limbs from an infection due to damaged blood vessels. Oh. And meningitis can cause brain damage or death. It's usually spread through droplets and treatment is generally antibiotics. So like droplets from coughing and... Exactly. Coughing, sneezing, stuff like that. In worst cases, it, it even leads to things like ventilation or loss of limbs amputation. Antibiotics can also be given to prevent complications. And it also requires two growth factors related to red blood cells, which is where they usually go first for an infected area. And these are hemin, which helps carry oxygen with blood cells and NAD. Cool. So you want to tell us a little bit about capsulated versus uncapsulated bacteria and how this causes pathogenicity? Yeah. So the only difference is this polysaccharide layer that you mentioned. And it's a gelatinous layer that covers the microbe, usually made of polysaccharide. And what that is, it's a carb that's made out of different sugars and that are bonded differently. It's responsible for serotypes within a microbe species. And serotypes is a distinction between different type of the same species. So they're basically genetically the same. Yes, with very slight differences. Very slight differences is the difference between serotypes. Yes, and serotypes refer to the cell surface antigen, specifically the type of polysaccharide that the bacteria has. And microbes with capsules, there's bacteria, like we said, Haemophilus influenzae, and there's also capsulated fungi. And what do these capsules do for microbes? They help prevent white blood cells from eating the bacteria and if they do manage to eat the bacteria, the capsules prevent the mechanisms white blood cells use from killing the microbe. That's sort of interesting because they're kind of wrapping themselves in sugar. And I feel like that's a good way to get eaten. Right. 
somehow that it's a sugar shield. I mean, for humans, you wrap something in sugar. I'm, I'm going to eat it. Eat it right up. Mm-hmm. And it also protects from compliment killing. Now, what compliment I like to think of is the Legos of the human body. You have these little pieces in your blood and a foreign microbe comes in your blood and they assemble to form like this pipe into the bacteria and it causes more or less its guts to spew out. And guts. So, and so this capsid helps protect the bacteria from having that happen. Well, that seems like a good thing to have then. And it also helps adhere microbe to the cell wall and aid in the formation of biofilm. And we love biofilm. We do. Yeah, that biofilm is going to be even probably a stronger shield than their little sugar coating. Yeah, and stronger against antibiotics too. And like you said, if they don't have the capsule, they're not as infectious. They can't cause disease because they don't have that protection against our immune system. Yeah, so going back to Pittman's life, in 1934... Um, Again, we're in the heart of the Great Depression. There faced a big reduction of staff at the Rockefeller. But Pittman was able to get a position with the New York State Department of Health in Albany. In 1935, however, Social Security Act provided funds for the National Institute of Health to add positions. So in 1936, Pittman, as a top scorer on a civil service exam, was one of the three bacteriologists hired by the NIH, where she worked until the end of her career. That's pretty prestigious. 1936, being a woman microbiologist hired at NIH. And one of the three. And one of the three. So between being a scientist at NIH and discovering this capsulation in H. influenzae, she gained international reputation before she was 30. What did you do before 30? I was in school. I know. I feel like we're in school. Like, I don't get, you don't get a PhD until you're 30 now. No. How did she do all that? I had a bachelor's. (laughs) (laughs) So she did quite a bit at NIH. It was the time, the mid 20th century was a great time, I feel, to be a microbiologist. There was so much to do. And really, you're just starting to get into a lot of great techniques and a lot of great collaborations. And there's a lot of, just fabulous people, it seems, in the mid-20th century that are all all working towards public health goals. She was interviewed by Dr. Victoria Hardin in 1988 and asked her, what impressed you most when you first began work at NIH? And Pittman responded with, I was much impressed by the number of studies that were directly applicable to public health. There's a great deal of collaboration. Again, where there's a small group of microbiologists, a bacteriologist who are just coming out of PhD school and starting to join the NIH in this public health mission, which I just think must have been amazing to be a part of, for sure. And so in 1938, the NIH moved from D.C. to where it is now in, oh, I can never say that. Bethesda? Bethesda? To Bethesda. Since at at this point, people began a little bit more separated and this kind of decreased the intellectual cross-fertilization, as she put it. In the 1930s, she worked with Dr. Sarah E. Brahman at NIH to work on standards for meningococcal antiserum. And Dr. Sarah Bronman was actually one of Pittman's instructors when she was at the University of Chicago. 
And so because Sarah E. Bronman is also obviously a great female microbiologist, I just want to do a little snippet on her life. It's interesting that she was born in 1888, died in 1962, and her grandmother and her mother, as well as herself, all attended Wesleyan College. Wow. Yeah, three generations of females going to college in a time where I didn't think women were allowed to go to college. Yeah. Like, that's remarkable. Then both of her grandfathers taught at that same school and at Emory and Oxford. Yeah, she comes from a family that really values education. When World War I opened up, this was kind of great for females because a lot of career opportunities opened up for them as the men were sent to war. She began teaching at the University of Colorado under bacteriology to med students. So after the war, she got her MS and PhD and an MD. Wow. Yeah. She did it all. In 1928, she joined NIH. She isolated the meningococcal microorganisms that caused meningitis and developed an effective serum, finding a cure to what everyone thought was an incurable disease. She also worked on diphtheria, dysentery, and psittacosis. She wrote over 70 papers and co-authored two books. Oh my god, that is so impressive, even by today's standards. Yeah, so that's my little highlight on Sarah E. Bronman. I want to look into her more because that's just amazing. So she worked with Margaret Pittman at NIH. Something that Margaret Pittman did that was amazing was in 1957, she became the first woman in history to head a laboratory at NIH with the title, and this is a good title. You ready for the title? I'm ready for it. Chief of the Laboratory of Bacterial Products. Ooh, that's a nice long I want to be a chief title. of something. <laughs> in the 1960s, she worked as the project director at a cholera research laboratory in Dhaka, East Pakistan for the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, which is called CEDO. John, would you like to talk about cholera and CETO? We talk about cholera. I feel like we talk about cholera every podcast. Well, yeah, it's pretty important in history, not to mention I'm a little biased with it. Yeah, we both worked with cholera at one point. No, I worked with Vibrio. I mean, I sort of worked with cholera. I mean, same genus. Yeah. CETO, as you said, was Southwest Asia Treaty Organization. This is an international organization that was originally made to block the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. It had funded cultural and ed- educational programs in the area. And they set up the Color Research Laboratory in Bangladesh in 1960. This year is actually the 60th anniversary of its inception. So it's still there? Still there. Wow. This was also the same year that a new cholera strain broke out in eastern Indonesia and started the current seventh pandemic. Wait, it's still the same pandemic that it was in the 60s? It is. That's 60 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Do you know if they're getting any closer to... I mean, probably with COVID, it's just getting worse. I don't know. It's One of the problems is cholera is so endemic in some areas that it's hard to get rid of. Mm. Later, they renamed it to the International Center for Diarrheal Diseases Research in Bangladesh. Still is one of the leaders of cholera research. 
and they work on solving public health problems in developing countries. And their initial focus was on diarrheal diseases, but they broadened uh, broadened it, including ways to deliver health care. And some of these achievements that they've uh, done is they've developed oral rehydration solutions in the 1960s, tested efficacy of vaccines, including the Haemophilus influenzae vaccine and the cholera vaccine, and they've also developed guidelines for treating severe malnutrition in children, which is endorsed by WHO. And it all started because of Margaret Pittman. I mean, a bunch of other people too, but that's a pretty good legacy for her. It's a great legacy. But we're not done yet. We gotta talk about whooping cough. Uh-oh. So after World War II, she began working on the pertussis vaccine. In 1906, backing up a little bit, Belgian researchers Jules Bordent and Octave Gango discovered that Bordetella pertussis is the bacteria that causes pertussis, which is the same year as syphilis, I believe, that they were able to see syphilis under a microscope. So the pertussis vaccine was actually created by two other female microbiologists. That's right. This episode is just littered with famous female microbiologists. So the pertussis vaccine was created by Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldring, who both had whooping cough before the age of five. So obviously they understood what it was and how terrible it could be. And I think that probably was a big motivation for them to continue this research and to really try to find that vaccine. And they did so during the Great Depression. Kudos to them for sure. Yeah, we have some amazing people on this episode. Yeah, they did some stuff. So in 1939, they had a three-year field trial with 5,815 children. And Eldering, one of the microbiologists who discovered the vaccine, quote, said, We learned about the disease and the depression at the same time. Many of the families were very poor and their lives, living conditions pitiful. We listened to sad stories told by desperate fathers who could find no work. We collected specimens by the light of kerosene lamps from whipping, vomiting, strangling children. We saw what the disease could do. Isn't that just haunting? Oh man, I could not imagine that scene. So where does Pittman come into this whole thing? So the pertussis vaccine was great, but there were a number of toxicity issues with it. And so this bothered Margaret Pittman, and she couldn't really understand why. And so she said in her interview in 1988 that it was not until I was a guest scientist at the University of Glasgow in 1976 that it suddenly came to me that pertussis had a true exotoxin like diphtheria or the cholera toxin. It caused the harmful effects and prolonged immunity of whooping cough. I think that's crazy how that vaccine, instead of targeting something on the bacteria, the vaccine is targeting the toxin the bacteria makes. You know, sometimes it's not the bacteria that's doing most damage. Yeah, sometimes it's what they're belching out. And so she published this work in a paper on May 1st in 1979 entitled Pertussis Toxin, the Cause of the Harmful Effects and Prolonged Immunity of Whooping Cough, a Hypothesis. And she actually tried to bring this up two or three times to different conferences and no one would really listen. No one thought it was true. And so it was the third time that she brought it up that people were like, oh, maybe it is a toxin. Maybe we should look into this. Ugh. It's like, I've been yelling at you for years. Come on. 
Yeah. So, John, tell us about whooping cough. Well, as we have already alluded to, it's a respiratory tract disease that has that is passed by droplets. And the main symptoms is a high-pitched breathing sound like a whoop that they describe, along with hacking cough that appears. And it's due to a thick mucus that gathers on your airways. And it usually affects children more than anyone else, doesn't it? Right. How terrible it would it be to just watch your kid go through that? There's not much you can do. And most recover with no problems or won't develop that woof. 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 Whoop. <laughs> whoop, whoop. All right. Not so, that kind of whoop. <laughs> some side effects is a, the strenuous cough, and you can cough so hard that your face gets red or blue, and you can start vomiting. Oh, that does not sound comfortable. No. And it can even, all this coughing can lead to bruised or ah. cracked ribs, hernias, or oh. blusted blood vessels in the eyes. Oh my God. And infants under six months are a particular risk. Uh, they get more severe complications like pneumonia and slowed or stopped breathing. It's due to the fact that their uh, airway is a lot less developed than older children or adults. They also don't really have good control over a lot of their... No, they don't have the strength. They don't have a lot of strength. They can't... like If you're a kid, you can kind of move or stand up or put your hands over your head like my mom always tells me to do when I'm coughing. But when you're a baby, you don't know how to do any of that stuff. No. There's only so much you can do. Because we have a vaccine, this is... uh, has become pretty rare, but due to the anti-vaccination movement, we're seeing rise and pop-ups in the United States more and more. Boo! Tell me about it. Get your kids vaccinated. It saves lives. And like you mentioned, it's caused by Bordetella pertussis. It is also a gram-negative cocobacillus like influenzae. Huh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it's, it is also capsulated. And as you said, it does produce toxins. It has several toxins, and one of them, which they call the tracheocidal toxin, paralyzes these things called cilia. And cilia are these little fingers cells have, and they're what move the mucus out of your airway. Oh, so if they're paralyzed, they're not moving anything. Right. and that's Things where, will just get stuck. Yeah, that's where you get the buildup from. Well, do you have anything else on pertussis to tell us? I mean, it was a real. It's a really nasty thing to have, but luckily, it's pretty rare now. It is, and it's one of those uh, vaccines you get every ten years as an adult too. It's one of the ones that are in a mixture of vaccines, right? Yeah, it's the Tdap tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis. Yep. All right, so we will end today's podcast by talking about the death and legacy of Dr. Margaret Jane Pittman. So, over her very long and prosperous, successful career, Dr. Margaret Pittman published over a hundred articles. Oh, man. That's so many. As well as chapters in several reference books. And she has received many awards. And I really love this quote from her. When she was asked how NIH changed over the years, she said, Today, there is a greater interest in self-promotion than in public health and its application. Now, this may be due to pressure from universities that scientists publish or perish. And so many people, a dozen or more people, may have their names on a single paper. They could not all possibly have had the heart of the problem at interest. Not all of them. We were so small that we were responsible for everything that happened. 
I think the attitude of young people today is different. It is to make a name for themselves. And I'm afraid that's being shown in the fraud cases that are coming out, being reported in Science Now. Man, mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think there is a lot of pressure on scientists to publish or perish or to collaborate with many different labs. In today's research, things get very, very complicated. Not everyone can have a hand in everything. You have to have someone who knows how to do the bioinformatics. Not everybody on the team is gonna be able to check that their work is correct. Yeah, there's so much science today that you can't generalize to everything. So Dr. Pittman retired in 1971. One of her greatest pleasures was stimulating other people to do projects. She was had a lot of satisfaction when new people come into work and they're very excited and motivated and she's able to connect them uh, with different information. Some people called her misinformation because she always knew where you can go to get certain information or who you should talk to in order to form a collaboration. Man, mentors really need to take a look at this person. Yeah, she seemed like a remarkable woman. She died on August 19th in 1995, but obviously her legacy still lives with us. There are a number of awards that have been given to her over the years. In addition, NIH has established a lectureship in her honor. Well, I believe that's the end of our show, so we'd like to thank you so, so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with it with a friend. And as always, you can find us at microbigales.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S.com. You can also send us some feedback at microbigales at gmail.com or rate us on iTunes. You can chat with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at microbigales. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we hope you and your microbes are off to a fabulous new year. Bye. Bye. Bye.